Let's pray. Then we're going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll dive into our teaching. Oh Lord, you say to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, you highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, you are Lord to the glory of God, the Father, Jesus. We want to see you now. We thank you that you revealed yourself in human flesh, that you humbled yourself, making yourself known But we thank you also that we know you are a risen Savior, a glorious Savior, and one who will come again. And at your name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess the truth of who you are. You are Lord of all things, the Christ, the Messiah. And help us see you now clearly by your Spirit in the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus is speaking here. And He said to them, speaking to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents for you. And one for Moses, one, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. This is the word of God. So Friday night at the Neyland household, uh, we watch movies. So it's movie night, and we'll make pizza. We'll put on usually a Disney movie. And you know there's those times when you put on a movie and you realize, all right, this might be just a little bit too old for my kids. Well, we have two three-year-olds. And we're watching the movie Aladdin, the good one, not the new one, the good one, right? (laughs) And you realize like halfway through this that the antagonist Jafar is, he's pretty wicked. He's pretty evil. And because of that, the kids feel the anxiety. They're, they're kind of terrified. In fact, our daughter Jane, you look at her, she's terrified. She's confused. She's anxious because there's been this plot twist. Aladdin has, you know, been with the genie and it seems like everything's going good. But then all of a sudden Jafar, the antagonist, he steals the lamp. And Jafar turns into this snake. He's kind of red in appearance. He becomes this all-powerful sultan and sorcerer. He's really evil looking. And my daughter Jane, she's uncertain, right? Because she's like, what's going on? This isn't what I expected. Why are you exposing me to this movie? In fact, she she looks at Jafar when he turns into a snake and she says, I don't like that man. I just don't like him. Let's watch Paw Patrol instead. From her point of view... Nothing, nothing is happening the way that she expects it. 
Jafar is in control. It appears like he's going to defeat Aladdin, defeat the genie, take over Agrabah, and enslave all those who don't follow him. But I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. So what can I do? I know the end from the beginning. I know all the plot twists. So what I can do is I can pause the movie. I can pause the movie, and I can even fast forward the movie to show her, hey, even though it looks like things aren't going as, they are, as you expected, look at how everything turns out, right? Jafar is defeated. Aladdin, he becomes prince. Jasmine, she becomes queen. Everything works out in the end. I can pause the movie, fast forward and say, no, Jane, look, look how everything ends. And the result is, Jane has comfort and she's consoled now. She can persevere now because she knows the end from the beginning. And this morning, we see Jesus doing that very thing. Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, what he does is he puts pause on his ministry. His ministry to all the crowds, all the people streaming in to to be with him in the wilderness. Jesus hits pause on his ministry. And you see in verse 2, Jesus leads Peter... James and John up this high mountain and once there he hits fast forward. He hits fast forward and he shows these disciples the end from the beginning. He shows them a glimpse of his second coming when he comes again in his kingdom in power and in glory. Because you remember if you were with us last week Jesus said something very surprising to his disciples. Something absolutely nobody expected. Remember, Jesus had said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. And on my way to Jerusalem, you know that I am the Christ. You know that I am the king of heaven and earth. You know that I am the one that all of the Old Testament promised. I am that Christ. But I'm not the kind of Christ that you expect. Jesus had this surprise for him. He said, you see, disciples, Almost every Jew around you, you yourselves have this expectation that I, as the Christ, I'm going to go into Jerusalem and I'm going to defeat God's enemies militarily. I'm going to establish God's kingdom on earth politically. I'm going to reign and rule in power on earth now as it is in heaven. And I will finally remove sin. I'm finally going to remove death, darkness, and evil from this world. That's your expectation. But that's not what I've come to do. At least not yet. Jesus said this very surprising thing. He adds this plot twist. He says, yes, I'm the Christ, but as the Christ, as the Son of Man, as the Messiah God promised in the Old Testament, he said, quote, the Son of Man, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Oh, and just to like sweeten the pot too, disciples. Notice this as well. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Yes, I'm the Christ. I'm the Christ. I'm the true king of heaven and earth, but I'm not going to Jerusalem to bring the kingdom of God in power and glory now. No, you're going to follow me in shame and dishonor. You yourselves are going to bear bear cross. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified for the sins of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, 
before I come in full to bring my kingdom, before I reign as king forever, before I come again in my second coming to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven eternally, first, I must suffer. First, I must be rejected. First, I must die and be buried, and you will bear crosses yourself as you follow me. Nobody expected that plot twist. (laughs) Nobody expected that. So just like me with my daughter Jane watching Aladdin, what Jesus does here in order to comfort and console his disciples, to let them know, you can trust me in bearing your cross. You can trust me in this life, even though it seems hard. Jesus offers that comfort and consolation here, hitting fast forward, showing them a glimpse of this is what's going to come. I will come in power. I will come in glory. And you will see me bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is where following me leads. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 1. You notice how Jesus started out. He's speaking here to all of his disciples in verse 1. And he says this, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is a difficult verse. Some people interpret this verse to mean that Jesus said, oh, he's going to come again and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth in his second coming before all the disciples die. So by the time Jesus dies in the year 33 A.D., Till about 95, when the last disciple died out, his name was John, people believed what Jesus was saying here is he was going to come again and he was going to reign on earth as king of heaven and earth. That's what some people say Jesus is saying here. There's one problem with that interpretation, and it's that if that's true, Jesus was wrong. And just as a general rule of interpretation, if that's how you interpret something where Jesus turns out to be wrong, you probably should get a different interpretation, okay? So just keep that in your back pocket for when you're reading the Bible. Know that if your interpretation is saying Jesus is wrong, it's a wrong interpretation. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, look at verse 2. It says very clearly that after Jesus said this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. You see what Jesus is doing here? is Jesus is showing these three disciples, Peter, James, John, something that no other disciple would see until they died. Jesus is pressing fast forward, showing them what it will be like when he comes in his second coming. Jesus is giving them a glimpse of what it'll look like when he brings his kingdom and power on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means when it says at the end of verse two that Jesus was transfigured before him, before them. That word transfigured is the Greek word metamorphothe. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. You ever read the book by Eric Carle? Fascinating book. Probably won a Pulitzer, I think. It's called Hungry Little Caterpillar. Anybody seen this? There's this little caterpillar that gets born, and he eats through everything. He eats through a green leaf. He eats through apples. He eats through popsicles. He eats through strawberries. He eats through French toast. He eats through everything. He has this big belly ache. What does he do? He goes into his chrysalis or his chrysalis. He transforms and then he comes out as a beautiful butterfly. He metamorphosizes, right? My kids, when they read this, they say, how did that happen? And I always say, kids, it's metamorphosis. And they say, no, Tyrannosaurus is a dinosaur. (laughs) 
And I say, no, 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 metamorphosis. It's the process, you know, where transformation from an immature form to an adult form in two or more distinct stages, commonly in the animal world. And they say, but what happened to the caterpillar? <laughs> we don't understand. Simply put what this means, transfiguration, it means that Jesus was radically changed. So much so that you almost can't find the words to describe this. At the bottom of the mountain, he appeared to them as a meek, uncomely, ordinary, Middle Eastern man, nothing but a human being who you could look at and look like a normal person. But at the top of this high mountain, Jesus is radically changed, transfigured to appear as he will appear in his second coming. When he brings his kingdom and power and glory in his divine nature on display. Matthew, when he gives an account of this, Matthew was another gospel writer. He wrote the first gospel in the New Testament. Matthew, when he talks about this, he, he says that Jesus' face was changed in this transfiguration. He writes, as he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun. When I was in Nashville in 2017, my wife and I lived in Nashville for a number of years. In 2017, there was a total eclipse. And this, I didn't realize this, but total solar eclipses, they're actually quite rare. They only happen in the United States in specific areas, a total eclipse, about once every decade. And people were traveling all over the world to see this eclipse. The city was passing out these special glasses and it was like eclipse day, 2017. And we're standing there on a Monday afternoon, we're standing outside and here it is. The sun starts to go behind the moon and for 96 seconds, the temperature dropped six degrees, but for 96 seconds, what otherwise we couldn't look at without scorching our eyes, we're looking directly up at the moon as if it's the middle of the night. You never had to turn your face, but then slowly the eclipse starts to pass. And then as it does, what you once could look out directly, it just becomes utterly overwhelming. You have to shield your eyes. You have to turn your face. That's what's happening with Jesus here. One moment going up the mountain, disciples stare into the face of Jesus, nothing but a human being, no different from looking at one another. But now as they stand on the top of the mountain, Peter, James, John, they see Jesus and it's like looking at the piercing rays of the sun. They just can't take it in. Jesus' face shone and changed into pure, radiant light. These disciples have to avert their eyes just like you have to avert your eyes to an eclipse because the light is just too overwhelming. And it's not just Jesus' face that changed, too. Look at verse 3 in Mark chapter 9. It says that his clothes also changed. His clothes were transfigured. Verse 3 reads that his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And this is an important part right here, second part of this verse. As no one on earth could bleach them. Meaning this intense splendorous, magnificent, eye-piercing radiance emanating from Jesus is not something natural. It's not something that you see on earth. No, this is a glimpse of something altogether different. This is a glimpse of the supernatural heavenly glory of God. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that 
when prophets or figures in the Old Testament, when they see and they get a glimpse of the heavenly glory, whether it's angels or heavenly beings or God himself in heaven, there's one common element in all of those visions. It's light. Pure, radiant light and lots of it. Think of the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel is actually very clear about this. He saw several visions of what it would be like when God and his Christ return in glory at the end of time. Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, Daniel recounts, he, he looked and as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is a vision Daniel's having of when God and his Christ come again to judge all humanity in glory and in power. And then later on, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel sees another vision. He says, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed with linen and a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, pure light, sun, fire, torches, lightning, fresh snow, white linens, the gleam of burnished metal, piercing brightness, lightning and thunder. This is like ACDC, thunderstruck, probably being played in the background, right? All of these are indicative, not of something natural, but supernatural. An appearance that you can't even take in. It's so divine. Something reserved exclusively for heaven. All are a glimpse of the purity, the majesty, the goodness, the holiness of God and his Christ coming in the power of his kingdom. All are glimpses of that future day of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here in Jesus of Nazareth, Peter, James, and John see Jesus transfigured, he appeared to them not simply in his humanity, rather he's radically changed. Jesus hits fast forward to that glorious end when he will come in his second coming and he shows them the splendor and the radiance of who he really is. Think how much the disciples needed that encouragement. Just think about that. They'd been following Jesus for over a year at this point. They had their expectations of what Jesus was going to do for them. They thought, Jesus, we're going to follow you into Jerusalem. You're going to ride in as king. You are going to give us power and honor as your disciples. And you're going to bring God's kingdom on earth right here, right now. Finally, somebody's going to remove the sin of the world. Finally, somebody is going to remove all oppression and injustice and evil from the world. But Jesus said, no. No, I haven't come to do that yet. If you follow me, you're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow me. I'm not going to Jerusalem to conquer. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And you will follow me there. But now, out of that just deflating feeling of the disciples, Jesus comforts and consoles them, hitting fast forward, showing them, hey, that's not all that there is, though. 
suffering, death, rejection, pain, sorrow. That's not all that there is. Yes, in my first coming, I've come to suffer and die. Yes, if you intend to follow me, you will bear a cross, but that's not all there is. I will come again. Remember this sight because you will see it when I come again. When we go to Jerusalem, you'll see me crowned with thorns, beaten by Roman authorities, mocked by religious leaders, scorned by humanity and crucified, but that's not all that there is. I will come again and on that day, I will return. You will see me in my purity, my majesty, my holiness, my righteousness, crowned with light, exalted in heaven. You see me now, but there is a day coming when I will come in glory. That's hard for us to believe, isn't it? Like the disciples, it had to be almost unbelievable. You, you said suffering, Jesus. Now you're saying we have to wait for you to come again? I was reading C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair with my kids. This is what we're reading at night. And the book ends with the main characters, Puddleglum, Jill, and Eustace. And they're in this underground world. They're in this underground world, and it's ruled by an evil witch. This world is filled with despair, sorrow, suffering, darkness, even for those who know Aslan, right? They know Aslan, but it's still suffering and despair. And they're encountering the witch in this underground dark world. And the witch, filled with envy, laughs at the children because they're all thinking about, remember how great it was when Aslan was by our side? Remember how great it was when the sun would rise in the morning and its light would pierce our eyes and we would see the greenness of the grass and the greenness of the trees and the witch filled with envy she starts to laugh at the children she says Narnia doesn't exist that thing doesn't exist there's no hope of light after all what is the sun and they're trying to figure out how to give it words they say well it's kind of like a lamp that you place on your bedside and she's like oh yeah well what is Aslan well Aslan's kind of like a cat, you know, but he's bigger and he's more intimidating and scoffing. The witch replies, your son is a dream and your Aslan is a delusion. There never was any world but mine. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no light, no Aslan. This world is all that there is. And Puddleglum replies back to her, you know what, you might be right. Suppose that we have only dreams. Suppose trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and even Aslan himself were all made up. Then all I can say is that the made-up things that we've come up with seem a good deal more important than the real ones of your world. Suppose this pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it's a funny thing when you come to think about it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world that licks your real world hollow. Friends, even though it seems like this world, filled with suffering, darkness, rejection, even though it seems like that's all that there is, even though it can appear that there's nothing greater than the world we see around us, Jesus says, no. Fast forward, look at this eternal glory that is to come. I will return. I will come again. You may think that there's no end to cancer. You may think there is no end to depression. That's all that there is. You may be tempted to doubt because it seems like death and evil and sin will always reign. Jesus says, no, there is a glorious day coming when I will come in glory and power. You know, I recently read a statistic Just terrible, terrible statistics. 60% of girls ages 12 to 18 in this past year said 
that they felt extensive sadness on a daily basis. 30% of those said that they contemplated suicide at least once a week. 18 to 25-year-olds, they're saying, according to research, it is the most anxious and depressed generation in human history. It can seem like this world is all that there is, that there's no end to all of this, but Jesus says, no, that glorious day, that end is coming. Jesus will return in glory, and he says, he will lick the things of this world hollow. He will utterly destroy evil and death. Look to that end. After all, that end and that glory, that, that's what all of the Old Testament, all of the prophets were looking toward. They said, that is the ultimate hope of all of human history is when God will return and do this. Look again in Mark chapter 9, verse 4. We see the entire Old Testament appear in human form. Verse 4, it's Elijah and Moses. Verse 4 reads that as Peter, James, and John are standing there with Jesus, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. Let us, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Elijah and Moses, these are two significant figures. Moses represented the law of God. The first five books of the Old Testament, Elijah represented all of the prophets of the Old Testament from beginning to end. Both of them are standing here next to Jesus and they're saying, yep, this is what we wrote about. When we saw that glory of God coming on the clouds to return, to renew heaven and earth, this is the one we saw. We saw that gleaming metal. We saw the light, the fire, the torches. This is what we were seeing. This is exactly what we beheld. The glorious Christ, whom all the prophets, all the Old Testament, all the scriptures anticipated, who would come and defeat even death itself. This is the one that we were looking toward, the glory we all longed for. And I love this. We, we read a little bit of it already. Peter, at this point, he's terrified. He has no idea what he's saying. This is token Peter right here. He makes this weird suggestion in verse 5. Rabbi, uh, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were all terrified. Peter doesn't know what he's saying here. Some commentators say that, you know, Peter's, he's just trying to be generous He's trying to be hospitable. Others say that Peter doesn't know what he's saying. He's just blubbering on and on. There's probably some truth to that. He's just scared. All of these are possibilities, but here's what I really think that Peter is doing. Remember how Peter didn't get it last week? Jesus said, I'm going to suffer. And what did Peter do? He said, no, 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 Jesus. You don't understand. You're the Christ. Your job is to bring power now. Your job is to overthrow Rome now. And what was Jesus' response? He says, pause, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Never a good thing to be called that. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So just as Peter didn't get it then, six days prior, he still doesn't get it now. Peter's witnessing Jesus getting a glimpse of Jesus' second coming, and he's anxious to keep things the way that there are, the way that they are on the mountain. Maybe you don't have to go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus. 
You know, maybe, maybe you don't have to die and be rejected. Maybe you can bring the second coming now. Forget all that cross stuff. That doesn't preach anyway. I don't even know how we were supposed to tell people about that, right? So you stay here now. Your glory right here. We'll build tents. You and me, we can bunk together. I get top bunk, right? We'll be in this tent. Then Elijah and John and then, you know, Moses and James, they can be in that tent. But, but me and you, you know, we're, we're hanging together, Jesus. And just as Jesus last week said, Peter, stop. You don't have your eyes on the things of God. Instead, you're setting your eyes on the things of men. Jesus stops Peter, and again, Peter stopped here. But this time, not by Jesus. This time it comes from the heavenly voice, God the Father. You see, immediately after Peter's talking, verse 7, Peter's interrupted because this cloud appears. And this is the same cloud that guided Israel in the desert for 40 years. This is the same cloud that hovered over the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. The same cloud that descended into Solomon's temple. What was referred to in the Old Testament as the glory cloud of God. This cloud appears and we read this cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. God himself confirms what Moses, Elijah, all the prophets, all of the scriptures had to say. God himself confirms what Peter had confessed. This is the Christ. This is my beloved son. This is the one who will return again from heaven in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. Listen to him. Listen to him because one day everyone will see this glory. What Peter, James, and John saw as future on one day will rush into the, presence, into the present and everyone will see Jesus for who he really is. Did you know this? The New Testament speaks of the second coming of Jesus over 300 times. Over 300 times it speaks of the second coming of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 says, and just as it was appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. James also writes of the second coming of Jesus. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives, until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus will return, prepare, be ready, listen to him, listen to his word. Jesus himself makes it very clear. He says that the son of man who came to suffer, he's coming back. And he says, when the son of man comes in his glory, this is Matthew chapter 25. When the son of man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The transfiguration, the witness of Moses and Elijah, the presence of the cloud, the confirmation of God from heaven, were all meant to show Peter, James, John, and us in vivid detail that that day is coming. That day is coming that Jesus spoke of, that the New Testament spoke of over 300 times. Jesus will return again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And on that day, he will judge all sin. He will judge all darkness. He will abolish evil. And he will bring those who trust in him, who bear their crosses in this life. He will bring them into eternal glory, eternal life, to enjoy his splendor, his majesty, his goodness, his holiness, eternally, forever. And on that day, he will wipe away every tear from every eye of those who trust in him. And we will see what Peter, James, and John saw face to face. Do you think that this made an impression on Peter? To see the glorified, transfigured Jesus with his own eyes? It's fascinating. Peter, he lived until the year 64 AD, maybe the year 67 AD. He probably died somewhere in between there. But on the years that he was living his last years, he, he lived for three years in Rome. And then in July of the year 64, this fire broke out through Rome. This, this fire that was massive, it destroyed all of these buildings. And what historians believe is that that fire was actually set by the Emperor Nero. The emperor of the Roman Empire set fire to his own city. And he did this because he wanted to build this palace. So he needed to sweep out an area of land in order to build this marvelous palace. So Nero needed somebody to pin the blame on of who started the fire, and he pinned it on those who were most weak, most vulnerable at the time. He pinned it on Christians. And as punishment for the fire, Nero gathered up hundreds and hundreds of Christians, and he tied them to stakes around his courtyard, held a party in the courtyard, and lit the Christians on fire to illuminate the courtyard where he was celebrating the fact that he was going to build a new palace. And Peter, who was in Rome during the fire, he was arrested, but they wanted to make even a more public display because he was a leader of the church. So they decided to crucify Peter upside down. And do you know what Peter was thinking about as he was sitting in a Roman prison awaiting execution, he was thinking about this. What he saw when he stood on the mountain, the transfigured future glorious Christ, whom he saw face to face, that's all that Peter could think about. He was thinking about the glimpse of glory, the glimpse of future that awaited him after his execution. In fact, in Peter's final letter, this is 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing and he's in prison. And he's writing a letter to Christians who need encouragement. And 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, we know he's talking about this coming eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he gives them this encouragement. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you, Christians, of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body while I'm still alive to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He's talking about his death. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at that time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter knew because of this transformation, this transfiguration, he knew that even through martyrdom, even through imprisonment, even through oppression, a greater glory awaited him. A glory that all the law and the prophets anticipated, a glory that all of the scriptures foretold, a glory that God himself confirmed from the heavens. Peter knew, even though I'm crucified in this life, even though I suffer in this life, I will be like Jesus. Just as he rose from the dead, I will rise from the dead and see his glorious face again. I will see my Savior face to face when I enter his eternal kingdom. Fanny Crosby was a hymn writer. She wrote over 8,000 hymns. You're probably familiar with some of them. Blessed Assurance is one of her hymns. Fanny Crosby, incidentally, was born blind. Blind from birth. And even though she was this, you know, historic and, and a popular hymn writer, People were just baffled to learn that, that this person who was blind and suffered so much on earth, how, how could God withhold sight from her? In fact, one of her friends came up to her one time and said, she writes this in her journal. The friend said, I think it is such a great pity that God did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. And Crosby responded by saying, I don't think it's a pity. Because when Jesus returns the first face that will ever gladden my sight will be that of my glorious Savior. This is not a cleverly devised myth. Jesus was transfigured in all his glory and power before the disciples. He showed them that this is the future that awaits, even though it appears that this world of suffering is all that there is. Jesus will come again in glory and power. And on that day, we will see him as the disciples saw him face to face. As I close, I just want to share, you know, I spent last week talking with people who had lost their 15-year-old son. And went to the funeral of this 15-year-old. And I remember sitting in this large auditorium with Hundreds and hundreds of people who are mourning the loss of this 15-year-old. I remember thinking, there's no way that this can be all that there is. To see this family grieving, to see these people heartbroken, 
and suffering. I had to think there, there can't be just this. There has to be more than this. And as I was thinking that, this verse from a song that we sing here came to mind. It, it goes, he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night and we will rise among the saints, our gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Even in the midst of suffering, even the cross in this world, we have this hope. We will see him face to face as Peter, James, and John saw him. And we will receive the glory and power of God on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are coming on the clouds. Every eye will see you. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And we thank you that you give us this vision, this glimpse in our lives now of the end that is to come. Jesus, our hearts long for that day. Our world sometimes feels like this is all that there is, that sin will never end, that death will never be destroyed, that darkness will always be the case. But we have this great promise that you will come again in your blazing goodness and glory and we will rise among the saints and we will see you face to face. The first sight that will ever gladden our eyes will be you, Jesus, our Savior. Would you help us sing of that glory now? In your name we pray, amen.